Nothing like uh, the Veggie Tales. A little Bob and Larry to get us started on our Sunday lesson. How many people remember Veggie Tales? Absolutely. Well, we'll test your knowledge here just a little bit. My kids pretty much grew up on Veggie Tales, and we can't forget where is my hairbrush? I love my lips, right? And we had uh, his cheeseburger, one of our favorites, and my all time favorite, the Pirates That Don't Do Anything. Excellent videos. But sadly enough, those days are gone. Those VeggieTale videos have been replaced by Pretty Little Liars and Call of Duty Black Ops or whatever David up in a balcony plays forever a day. But I'm very excited about coming and talking to you guys today because when Alex commissions me to speak, I like when he tells me to speak about somebody in the Bible. Uh, I like that because I have a way to relate to those people in the Bible. Everybody I've spoken about, I find a little bit of me inside that person. And Jonah's no different. I see myself in there, and I also see my middle child, my youngest daughter, uh, inside, uh, inside Jonah. Uh, we are going to be following uh, Jonah, page 60, 645 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. And now I realize that uh, after that awesomely comprehensive VeggieTales video, we probably don't need to learn any more about Jonah, but I am going to push forward a little bit anyway. So the question is, who is Jonah, and why should we care? Well, Jonah was a prophet, ooh, ooh. Um, among others, he has his own book in the Bible. When you have your own book in the Bible, you typically have a very important story to tell, and I'm going to help out and tell that story today. It is my opinion that Jonah is the most stubborn character and person in the Bible. And again, he reminds me of myself, but more so of Anna. And I'm going to tell you a quick little story here that she's heard a thousand times, as has my wife, but it is the epitome of who my daughter was and still is to this day, extremely stubborn. She was like three years old. We were, we were in Brunswick, and I had walked into the family room, and on our coffee table was a mound of Kleenex. I don't know how many, but I'm going to say five or six, somewhere in that ballpark, and not laid out Kleenex, you know, blow your nose, wadded up type, thrown on the table type Kleenex. And I knew it was Anna because she's the only one in there, and I knew it was her. And I said to Anna, I said, are those your Kleenex? And she said, yes. And I said, why didn't you throw them away? And this is the reaction. So I ask her again, why didn't you throw those away? Nothing. I said, okay, we'll play this game. So I get in the kitchen. I have her sit down on the linoleum floor next to me. No pad, no chair, literally in the middle of the kitchen floor, close enough to me that I can see her. And I figured I'll have a little snack. I'll read the newspaper. A couple minutes down the line, she'll fess up. We'll be able to move on with the day. 45 minutes later, my little girl comes up, taps me on the shoulder, and I look down at her, and she says, because I'm lazy. So we continued out with our day. She is still my most stubborn child. So Jonah's story begins with God telling him to go, from, uh, go to east from Israel to the city of Nineveh. The people there are messing things up really bad, and Jonah's to go there and preach the word of, the, of God. But instead, Jonah hops on a boat, and he heads in the complete opposite direction. And then, ironically, the storm brews up. And I guess a little punishment for his little temper tantrum of a trip Jonah decides uh, to take. Storm brews up. The crew's getting all nervous. So to avoid further problems, he volunteers to get thrown overboard. A fish swallows him up, and some three days later, the fish spits him out on land. God gives uh, Jonah a second chance to go to the city of Nineveh, and this time Jonah decides he's going to obey. Reluctantly, apparently three days inside the gut of a fish, kind of kicks the stubbornness out of you. So he speaks to the people of Nineveh, 
where they listen to him, the people repent, the city is changed, and then the story ends with Jonah arguing with God about what happened to the people of Nineveh. So that's it. That's the story of Jonah. You can all go home now. Have a good week. It's all we need to know. Actually, we're going to dig into just a little bit. Uh, to say the least, Jonah was a bold guy. God says, go east. He goes west. Then he actually argues with God. Who argues with God? Not me. I don't want a part of that. He lets himself get thrown overboard into a raging sea. So that's pretty amazing right there, right? You disobey God. You flee from God. You argue with God, yet you still walk with God. And that should be very comforting to all of us to know that Jonah messed up. He still walks with God. We're imperfect. We can mess up, and we can still walk with God. And when it comes to walking with God, there is no doubt that one of the central and core issues of walking with God is our obedience to God. God has expectations for us. And because he has those expectations, we have choices to make. God did not create a world full of yes-men and robots. We have free will. We can choose whether or not we obey or not obey God. And Juggle struggled, struggled with the issue of obedience to God, as we do at times as well. So Jonah's story is about a man with a great calling, but he didn't want to obey God. But we can learn a lot from Jonah, so we're going to take a look. Slide one. Very first chapter, very small book of Jonah, but there's a lot we can learn. Verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down to it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he's fleeing God. So let's put this into perspective. Jonah just receives a mission from God, and his mission was to go to the city of Nineveh and preach the message that God has given to him. But there's a problem. Jonah doesn't like the mission. Why doesn't he like it? I'm glad you asked, Missy. I'm going to tell you why he doesn't like it. Assyria was this powerful nation, and Nineveh was one of the cities underneath Assyria. And they were the bullies of the time. And they would go and they would dominate and overtake other countries. And one of the countries that fell victim to Assyria and to Nineveh was the nation of Israel. And they were pretty ticked off about it. I think I'd be ticked off if somebody overtook my nation as well and I had to heed to what they said. Well, Jonah took that to heart, and it bothered him greatly. In verse 2, it says that the wickedness of the people of Nineveh has come up before God himself. So obviously God sees that there's bad things going on in Nineveh. So here's what happened. Because of the sins of the Assyrians, God has judged them. Some big disaster has come upon the city. We don't know what the form that disaster took place. It doesn't really matter at this point. We just know that there was disaster and there were problems in the city. But what does matter is that God has compassion for them. He cares about them. So he sends Jonah to warn the people of Nineveh that there's yet another judgment coming against the city. But Jonah has no compassion for him at all. He doesn't care. He wants to see Nineveh get what's coming to them. It's kind of like deflate gate. I know, Paul, you can relate to this, right? Follow football, the Patriots. They are like the uh, dynasty of a football team. They're on top, just like Assyria and Nineveh, beating people all over the place, win the Super Bowl, and then they deflate their footballs. It's not enough that they get, you know, reprimanded at, oh, you did a bad thing, couldn't care less anyway, but people wanted to see the Patriots fall. They're the, they're the top dog, the front runner, so they want to see them fall. They want to see the Patriots get what's coming to them. That's Jonah in this particular circumstance. He wants to see Nineveh get what's coming to him. He wants no part of saving him. So what does he do? He runs. He splits town. He's gone. And it is amazing the lengths that people will go to to escape 
from something, not avoid. There's all kinds of times when we avoid people, grocery store, parking lot, school, you can just turn away, pretend you don't see them. That's avoiding. But to really escape something takes quite a doing in your life to make that happen. A couple stories to share with you. Back uh, shortly after the end of World War II, there was a German guy who's in prison, and he wants to escape. He's on some fraud charges or something crazy like that. He actually puts himself in a box, and he mails himself out of prison, and it works. Pretty elaborate, but at some point, apparently, he's out of the prison walls, busts the box open, he's free. Whether he stayed free, I don't know, but took a lot to escape from that situation. There's another story about a group of Cubans. They decide they want to flee from Cuba to Florida to avoid that tyranny. They take a 59 Buick. Phil, you know what a 59 Buick looks like. It's not a boat, is it? They make it into a boat. And they decide they're going to drive, apparently, because they're in a car, from Cuba to Florida. That's desperate. That's doing tough things to escape from a country. Luckily for them, saving their lives was the U.S. Coast Guard. It intercepted them sometime in between there. But the point is, it's very difficult to escape most things. It is absolutely impossible to escape from God. If I could have slide two, please. Solomon understood how difficult it was to escape the presence of God. And he writes this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings in the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. But Jonah thought he'd give it his best shot anyways, and he went to great lengths to avoid God and escape the mission that God had for him. Now, we know his mission was to go hundreds of miles to the northeast to Nineveh, but instead he decided to sail to the city of Tarshish, which is southwest, complete opposite direction. Now, here's a weird thing. We don't think about in the Bible because it doesn't really tell us. You've got to research it a little bit. But going to Tarshish wasn't like going to Hinckley or Medina. The boat trip from Jerusalem to Tarshish was 12 months, 12 months on a boat to get away from God. Okay, he wasn't a stowaway. The Bible tells us he paid his way. So Jonah must have had some cash. I don't know what kind of job he had. I didn't research that. But he had to have a ton of money to take 12 months off and pay a wage of 12 months to get away from where God wanted him to be. But God doesn't give up on Jonah, which was good for Jonah. And it's also great for us. It's comforting to know that we have a gracious, merciful, and persistent God that continues to pursue us when he wants us to fulfill for him and walk with him. Now, there's two reasons that God did not want to give up on this mission. First off, there were 120,000 people in Nineveh, 120,000 people that God cared about greatly. Jonah chapter 4, verse 11 says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Now, it didn't matter what these people had done. Points are relevant. God still cared about them, and he loved them. And that should be comforting to us, because we all mess up. We all make mistakes, and yet God continues to shower his love on us. And when the Bible says people connect, the people of Nineveh could not discern between their right hand and their left, this wasn't a city of morons. It's not like they didn't understand that their left hand and their right hand. The problem was is that God had already judged them. They had bad things happening in their city. They brought it on themselves. The problem lied in the fact that they had no idea how to get out from God's judgment. They didn't know where to go or what to do. They were literally helpless. So God extends his hand of grace to this now heathen nation. And the second reason God wasn't prepared to give up on them is that he had a plan for Jonah, like he has a plan for all of us. And I'm thankful that he hasn't given up on me. 
Even though Jonah didn't care about the Ninevites, God still cared about this rebellious prophet. He loved him. He wanted to see him complete this mission. So in, in the verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord tells us, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Now remember, Jonah's already on this trip. He's on the boat. He's out in the middle of the ocean. And the Bible says that the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. All right, now I'm thinking of a storm that God brews up. I'm not thinking of the little rain shower we may get here. And we've had some rough storms. But remember, this is a God-driven storm. So I imagine this thing's pretty rocking and things are happening over there. So he hurls this great wind out onto the sea. And you wonder, why is God doing this? Why does he put this storm onto the sea? Well, he's trying to get Jonah's attention. Jonah's on a boat. He's already made his decision. God says, you know what? I'm going to God smack you a little bit. Here's a storm for you. He tries to get Jonah's attention, but it doesn't work. Jonah's still not listening, i.e. Kleenex in my family room. He's still too stubborn to get the message. So Jonah 1, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. So they're throwing everything off of the boat to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down, and check this out, fell asleep. Jonah fell asleep on a boat that's in the middle of a God-driven storm. And I can only imagine the violence of the sea that hit this boat. Slamming that thing back and forth, cargo inside, bouncing all over the place, people yelling and screaming with all the chaos that the storm is bringing. And all this turbulent time, what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. How in the world does someone sleep through something like that? Now, even the unbelievers on the boat, the pagans of the boat knew there was a problem. And they also knew that, that, that Jonah was a prophet and a Christian, and they had to be thinking, what's with this guy, right? Christians of this church. People watch us. They see what we do. They hear what we say. Everywhere we go, everywhere we go, every, everything we do, somebody's watching us to see how we act as Christians. And the crew was watching Jonah. And they definitely had the question, what was going on there? But amazingly, through all of this, a man of God, a man that walks with God, you know he doesn't even pray to him? Doesn't even pray to his Savior when he's on this boat that's almost getting ripped to shreds. The pagans on the boat. The non-believers are the ones that are praying, and the captain of the boat actually comes to Jonah and says, hey, can you pray for us and, and help us out here a little bit? So finally the crew decides that the only way they can resolve this problem is to draw straws. Whoever draws a short straw must be the problem. We're going to take care of it. But at this point, Jonah says, you know what, guys? i got to fess up. It's me. I caused the problems on this boat. I caused the problems with you guys, so we got to do something about it. Jonah 1.9 says, he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The only problem is he's being super hypocritical in this situation. On one hand, he said he fears God. You fear God, you tend to do things God wants you to do. But on the other hand, he's right in the middle of a direct, intentional course of disobedience to God. So which one is it? So the crew asked Jonah, hey, what should we do? So Jonah says, look, just throw me into the ocean. Get me off the boat. All your problems will be saved or solved. Now, the crew is way more concerned about Jonah than he was about them. Jonah's sleeping, and the ship's getting trashed, and he doesn't care. Now, they say, he says, throw me overboard, and they have way more compassion, but they said, hold on. Let's make that our last, last course of action. Let's try to row to shore, okay? Now, we're not in a 59 Buick turned into a boat. We're on this big sea vessel in the middle of a raging storm that God had cooked up, and they're going to stick their little paddles out the side of the boat, try to paddle to shore, I'm not thinking that's going to work very well. So they abandon that, and they realize, you know what? We don't have anything else we can do. Jonah, we've got to throw him overboard. So they do. 
So then God has this huge fish come and swallow him. That doesn't really sound like a saving grace, does it? Fall into the ocean, fish swallows you up. But where would you rather be in a raging storm on the ocean? On the top of it, getting smacked around by the waves? Or underneath the water, away from the wind and the turbulence? So although it seems a little bit ironic, it seems a little bit harsh, the fish swallows Jonah, takes him under, saves him. Now the next question. All right, come on. Can somebody really get swallowed by a fish and survive? Can this really happen? Here's what I have to tell you. If our God can create the world, the universe, if our God can create us, if our God can defeat death, how hard is it going to be for him to have a man swallowed by a fish and spit up three days later? He could breathe that in a moment. Now, setting faith aside, which I try not to do very often, I want you to listen to this story. A story about a seaman. His name is James Bartley. Late 1800s, he's on an uh, ocean vessel in the South Atlantic. He's on a whaling ship. They harpoon a whale. They send the boats out to go get and retrieve this whale. As they get there, the whale's taken line like crazy, 800 feet of line under the surface, and then the line goes slack, which means that the fish is coming back up to the surface. Typically, it comes up on the side of the boat. You harpoon it again. The whale's dead. You drag him back to the ship. Everything's good. This time, the whale comes up directly under the boats that are out there to get this whale. Smashes the boats to pieces. People are missing. Tragedy strikes. They manage to harpoon, harpoon it a few more times. They drag the, the, the fish back onto the boat. They cut them open, and inside the stomach, what do they find? James Bartley, alive, after being inside the stomach of a whale. So can someone get swallowed by a huge fish? Can Jonah get swallowed by a fish? I'm sure it's spoken of in some of the Christian circles as maybe a Christian urban legend kind of a thing. In the natural world, is it possible to be swallowed by a whale or whatever type of fish? I don't know. But God's not limited to the natural. I believe this is a miracle of God's intervening grace. And more importantly, I believe that God is a God of second chances, and this is where he gives Jonah his second chance. Chapter 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. God graciously gives Jonah a second chance on this mission. And this reminds me of a story uh, that we can find in the book of John between Jesus and Peter. You guys all remember what happened to Peter upon right before Jesus got crucified, right? Three times he denied Knowing, and, uh, knowing Jesus. Three times. Every time somebody asked him, I don't know the man. You're crazy. I wasn't with him. I'm not one of them. Well, then Jesus comes back from the dead. He's resurrected. What if you're Peter? The last little conversation you had with Peter, between Jesus and Peter, you're denying that you even know him. And you said that you would die for your Savior. Yet you deny him three times. So I don't know if I'd be very excited about meeting Jesus after denying him three times. But Jesus comes to Peter. And he says, do you love me? Three times he asked Jesus that, and each time Peter says yes, and each time Jesus recommissions Peter. Three times denied, three times recommissioned. God is the God of second chances, but we shouldn't take that for granted. We can't just toy with God and treat him lightly because there are no guarantees that we'll get that second opportunity. God is a God of grace, and he often gives second chances, but there are no guarantees. So back to our story. Jonah did get a second chance from God. So Jonah goes down to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, and this time he decides to obey with an attitude, very reluctantly, but he goes. And Jonah preaches the message that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. 
and I can only imagine how uninspired and how drab this message must have been. <clears throat> Remember, he's preaching under protest, basically. I'm sure it was far less than spectacular. So here's the way I picture his sermon going and him preaching to the people of Nineveh. <clears throat> okay, people of Nineveh, you got 40 days to, uh, to shape up. If you don't, real bad things are going to happen. God told me to tell you, so shape up or you're going to have some problems. That's it. But then something amazing happens. There's an outpouring of the Spirit of God, and everywhere people are turning to God. The entire city of Nineveh is repenting after this lackluster preaching sermon that Jonah gives them. How would you feel if you had preached that message and you saw all these people coming to Christ and all these people repenting for their sins? Me, I'd be amazed. I'd be overjoyed. I wouldn't even know what to do with myself if I could, by speaking God's words, have an entire nation turn to God. And I'm sure at that point my preaching would extend outside the walls of Polaris and there'd be other churches asking me, hey, we've got some disobedient people here and we've got sinners here. Since you turn Brunswick around, come over to our city. And I'd be happy to go there and preach to them and watch people turn to God and repent and accept God as their Savior. But was Jonah happy? No. Jonah's not happy at all. In fact, Jonah's pouting over this whole thing. Poor Jonah. I feel so sorry for him. John 4 says there, Jonah 4 says this, but it displeased Jonah, slide 4 please, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, displeased him that all these people were coming to Christ. He became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. But he was speaking about himself, not of the people in Nineveh. Jonah was offended. He was indignant because he did not like what God had done. And now we can see exactly the pettiness that was in Jonah's heart. He was happy to see the grace of God work in his own life, giving him a second chance with the fish, right? Giving a second chance to complete his mission. And later there's a plant that God gets to grow that he, uh, he enjoys as well. So as long as it's in his favor, Jonah's a happy guy. But there was no way he wanted to see the grace of God poured on the Assyrians or on the city of Nineveh. But God's not finished with Jonah yet. God's about to teach him an important lesson here. Slide five, please. Verses six through eight. <clears throat> and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, getting sunsick. Then he wished death for himself and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Again, poor Jonah. Jonah entered the city of Nineveh from the west side. He preached his message, exited on the east side, one time through, in and out, nobody gets hurt. Then he scampers up to the side of the hill outside the city to sit down and wait to see what happens. No doubt hoping that judgment was going to fall on Nineveh. Not grace, not mercy, but judgment. And back in those days, inside the city walls was typically pretty decent. You had water, you had food, you had a place to, to sleep. But outside the walls was pretty crappy, it was barren. So Jonah did the best he could, probably pushed some rocks together, threw some sticks over, made himself a little shelter. It was not very good, primitive at best. God feels sorry for him, so he has this plant grow to give him some shade. He sees that his carpentry skills aren't that good. And Jonah's happy. He's really happy with this new plant that he has. It's got some shade. He's waiting for this judgment to fall on Nineveh. And then the plant dies. Sun's beating down on Jonah's head. Jonah gets angry, and now he's depressed. 
Verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in night and, when one night and perished in one night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people? So where's the lesson here? What's our takeaway from Jonah? And what does Jonah's story teach us? Jonah had pity on a mere plant. He had pity on himself. But he couldn't care less about 120,000 people that were living in Nineveh. He wanted his justice, and he wanted what he thought was right. And Jesus said this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Because you see, in God's economy, even one soul is worth more than the entire world. But Jonah didn't care. He cared more about one plant than he did about 120,000 souls. There's definitely something wrong with Jonah's values here. And when we choose our comfort and our game plan over God's, then there's something wrong with our values as well. So I want to close with this little, little thought right here. It's a parable from Matthew 21. The parable goes like this. Father has two sons. He went to the first and told his son, go to the vineyard and I want you to work for me. And the son said no. But then he thought about it and he said, you know what? I am going to go work for my father. And he goes to the second child. And he says, I want you to go work in my vineyard. And the child says yes. But the child does not go and work in the vineyard. And then Jesus asked, which son did the will of his father? And the answer is the first son. The one that actually went and worked in the vineyard. Now there could easily be a third son in this parable. And the father says to this son, go work in my vineyard. And the son says no. And then there's this argument and a discussion between the father and the son. And finally the son says, fine, I'll go work in your stupid vineyard. Now quit bothering me. He's the son that gives grudging obedience, half-hearted obedience. And that's Jonah. And that's us when we hear God, know what he wants, and we run from it. God's calling us to wholehearted obedience. Not obedience when it's convenient. Not obedience when it's comfortable. Not when it works into our plans. But when God wants it to be that way. So the question for you this morning, will you choose to follow God's calling and be obedient? Or will you choose to run from it? band's going to come up and play a final song for us um, as a time of prayer. If anybody has something they'd like to, to pray about, I'll be down over here on the left-hand side. We can pray with you, good or bad things. God's a loving God. It's not always about stuff that we want, but we can give, give great, a glory to God for the things he's given us in our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord. Uh, we thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning. We thank you for your word. And Father, I ask for forgiveness uh, for myself and everybody here on how disobedient we are at times. And it's my prayer to you, Father, that the Holy Spirit work in each and every one of us, that when your word comes to us and we see your calling to us, that we are obedient and that we do not run from us. Give us that strength, Father. It's in your name we pray.